A common sense media survey found the average age that most kids were exposed to porn is just 12 years old. The author of the story that we're investigating today was just three, and it was a relative who introduced her to what no child should ever see. Sexual abuse followed a couple of years later, so it's no wonder that being trafficked into the adult entertainment industry didn't seem very out of the ordinary to her. I'm so glad you've joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. We're going to dive into another compelling true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. This is Season 5, Episode 4. Our book this week is Scars and Stilettos by Harmony Griot, and our guest is Jean Roberson. We'll check in with Jean after we investigate this interesting book. I'm going to guess that when most of us think about sex trafficking or the adult entertainment industry, we imagine that victims are mostly women from foreign countries and they're lured in to come to the United States with the promise of a legitimate job that will help them escape grinding poverty. For Harmony Griot, it started with a handsome young man that her mother took in when his own home life grew too chaotic. Harmony was just 15 when Derek moved into her house, and it wasn't long before they were having sex. Since he wasn't forcing her, physically anyway, to Harmony, it meant that he cared about her. When it became clear to Harmony's mom that he only wanted to freeload off of them, she told him if he didn't get a job, he had to move out. Harmony was devastated, and even as poor as she was, she gave him the little amount of money that she'd saved from her summer job. She wanted him to need her. Weeks later, he told her he was thinking about joining the army as a way to support himself. She was terrified and told him that she would get a job and that they would get an apartment. There was no mention, though, of him getting a job. And it's not like they shared the apartment. Harmony was just supporting Derek. When her home life finally disintegrated to the point where she had to find her own place, she told him that she just couldn't pay his rent anymore. She hoped that this would encourage him to man up and really start to support himself. Instead, he just moved in with her. She then started looking around for a second job. She found what seemed like it was going to be a hostess position. But when she actually got there to interview, she found out that the job was actually that she would sit around and men would pay to come sit by her and talk to her. Technically, there wasn't supposed to be any touching, but the friendlier a girl was, the more money she made. I have to give Harmony a lot of credit, though, because while she was doing this, she managed to graduate high school and start college. Unbelievably, that positive step would start her down a much darker path than the one she was already on. She had made a friend in one of her night classes, and one day while they were chatting about college life, she admitted that she was really missing out on a lot of the fun stuff because of how many hours she had to work to pay tuition and rent and for food and everything else you have to do when you're supporting yourself. He told her that his mom had a friend who made great money as a topless dancer. Harmony was offended at first, but when he said she could make two or $300 a night, she reconsidered. Derek still wasn't helping pay any of the bills, and he was excited at the thought of Harmony stripping so that she could bring in more money. He told her it was up to her, but that it would be nice to pay off some bills. Oh, and to get him some new basketball shoes. All Harmony could hear was that he needed her. Even that really wasn't enough to convince her. She brought up the idea with a professor that she admired secretly hoping that he would tell her not to do it. 
His only question to Harmony was what club she was thinking of working at. She gave in and became the youngest dancer at the club, and that fact, creepily enough, made her extra money. It's hard to wrap your head around that one, isn't it? That guys would pay more the younger they thought the stripper was. Harmony got over her initial discomfort once she realized that she was going to be making enough money to buy things like string cheese, yogurt, and real fruit juice instead of just Kool-Aid and ramen noodles. And she thought maybe Derek would treat her better if she could buy him more things. But what Derek did was tell Harmony that he had gotten another girl pregnant and that that girl would be moving in with him. Harmony realized she'd been selling herself for him, and this is what she got in return. To try to ease her growing depression and anxiety, Harmony turned to a childhood passion. That would lead to another major change in her life. She signed up for a ballet class, and that's where she met and got to know a lady named Tanya. They became friends, chatting before, after, and sometimes during class. The day came when Tanya asked what Harmony did for a living, and Harmony answered her honestly. It didn't seem to faze Tanya, which really impressed Harmony, because, you see, she'd learned that Tanya was a Christian, and so, of course, she feared being judged and rejected if Tanya knew about the life she was living. In what was, to me, the most poignant and heartbreaking quote in the entire book, was when Harmony said about Tanya, Through her eyes, I began to see myself differently. Did you know that you and I have that kind of power too? We have the power to help someone make the move from an unsafe life to a safer one just by treating them like they matter. Because they do. Today's guest, author, speaker, and trafficking survivor, Jean Roberson, has a lot in common with Harmony. So let's get to my chat with her. Jean, thank you so much for being with us and for sharing what I know is not the most comfortable story to share. You were trafficked into the adult entertainment industry when you were 17 years old. But I want people to realize that things don't just happen overnight. You've got a backstory that brought you to where you were at 17 and made you more vulnerable to what happened. So give us part of that backstory and then let us know how easy it was for you to be brought into this industry to the point where you didn't even realize you were being trafficked. Well, thank you, Lori, for inviting me to be on your show. This is a very important topic, and uh, I'm glad to be able to share this story uh, to help others understand what grooming is actually about. A lot of people, when they think of human trafficking, they think of being put in a cage or being kidnapped. What they don't realize is how common the grooming form of trafficking is, and that grooming is a huge part of trafficking. Grooming is when, say, a boyfriend maybe has a girlfriend and he doesn't work and the girl is supporting him and, you know, she's come from a dysfunctional background and what she wants is someone to love her and to look out for her and he's willing to do all of this and she's not willing to lose him. She's kind of vulnerable to whatever his desires are and sometimes it means working and giving him money or it means working and having her sleep with his friends. There are a lot of different forms of grooming. In my case, I had left home when I was 14 years old. I came from a very dysfunctional background. I was the only girl and I had seven younger brothers. I ran away. I went to Florida. I met an older guy. He was almost 20. I was 15 and I became pregnant. 
His parents actually were a Christian family, and they insisted that we marry. Shortly after the marriage, he became abusive. I lost the child. I stayed with him because I just didn't know any better and became pregnant again. The next time he hit me, I left, and I went back to Massachusetts to my mom. I lived with my mother for a little while until I had gotten on welfare and was able to get into the projects. Well, I used to go to a restaurant while I was pregnant for my son. I had become friendly with a waitress who had recommended that I go to this, it was like a restaurant kind of a a dinner club, and they had shows there. And I'd never seen a show like the show that was there. It was a man and a woman, and they were doing this beautiful, romantic kind of a dance to beautiful music. And I met this woman there. Her name was Linda. And she asked me, you know, would you ever like to do something like this? And I thought, oh, gosh, I could never do anything like that. And I told her, you know, I'm not a professional dancer like these people are. And these people weren't doing anything wrong. It was actually a beautiful show that they had done. So she said, well, I can teach you how to dance. And she came to my house and she brought beautiful costumes. She did my hair. She gave me wigs. She put makeup on me. She showed me how to wear false eyelashes. She said, I'm going to make a star out of you. I'm going to put you on the road and you're going to become a feature act. Your name is going to be on marquees. I'm going to have your picture in the paper. You're going to make so much money. You're not going to know what to do with it all. You'll be able to buy your son a home with a backyard. I mean, this woman filled my head with every dream I could have possibly imagined, especially coming from a poor, dysfunctional home. Sure. And I had never been in a strip club in my life. I didn't even know what they were at the time. She taught me how to take the costumes off. She taught me how to move and hold my arms and present myself center stage. She taught me all these things, and I felt beautiful. I felt like a movie star in these beautiful clothes with the boas and the fans and the feathers. And I mean, I had never even really seen anything like that on TV. And she sent me on the road in New England, and I became one of the most desired feature attractions in New England. I was in a different city. They paid for my hotel. I only had to do three shows a night, three shows a day. And I did. I made a lot of money. But She took a percentage, and so did the clubs, of every single night and day I worked. And that's part of what trafficking is. It's someone is getting money for something that they're having you do. Right. She took a portion of every single thing I made and every other young girl that she represented, and she represented herself as my agent. As the years went on, I never thought that this was something that I didn't decide to do. I always thought that, you know... This was my own decision. I said yes to her. I was drawn in by all of the promises that she made. As still having just turned 17, I was a baby. Even though I had run away from home and been married, I had graduated high school. I'd never been to a prom. I didn't have a real job per se. I was very young and very naive. And those are the type of women or young girls that these people prey on. Because we're not smart enough to know the difference. We do think it's our own idea. That's part of the reason people don't understand why it's so hard to get out. Yes. Because you don't even really realize that it wasn't your idea to get in. Yes. And that by far was the case. I stayed in that business until I was 38 years old off and on. And people have said to me, but how is it that somewhere along the line, you didn't realize that what you were doing was wrong? 
it wasn't so much that I didn't realize what I was doing was wrong. It was that I didn't know how to do anything else. And in the early years, all throughout my 20s, I was so caught up in the lifestyle, it fed me. I mean, you become addicted to alcohol. You become addicted to the money you're making. You become addicted to the status that you have and the compliments. Oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, you should be doing this. And, you know, and the money, the more money you made, obviously, the better you were. So the only confirmation that I ever received was what I received inside those walls of that club. And on that stage, I didn't have any sisters in the dressing room. There were other dancers that I worked with. We talked about our kids, our boyfriends, our lives. We shared everything together. They were like my sisters. I write in my book, it's like, you know, they were my sisters. The club owners and the managers were like my fathers and the people who looked after me and protected me. And the stage was my playground because I could manipulate. I could control And there's nothing else in life, no matter what I did to try to get out of it, that could ever give me that kind of feeling. So there's an addiction there just in itself. And as far as knowing how to behave outside of that life, I didn't have anybody to teach me. I went into it so young. I didn't have what I needed, life skills, to be able to walk away and say, this is wrong. And I didn't have God in my life at that time. And I didn't really have any godly influences in my life. That's such a huge thing that you just brought up, why it's so important for us to mentor young people and Mm -hmm. and to be a good and godly influence in their lives. You've talked a little bit about in your book about PTSD how it's not even over once it's over. You're still having that your whole life. So when you're beginning your journey out of that life of abuse and being taken advantage of to living a life with God at the center of it, what was the biggest influence on you to be able to do that, to start living that godly life and to walk away from something that that you said yourself you were really addicted to? I was. I was very addicted. And I was very blessed to, I hit bottom. I I hit bottom with alcohol. I tried to commit suicide. I had had um, an abortion. I had one thing after another that I went through. By the time I was in my 20s, my late 20s, I didn't want to live. And I had a young child that I needed to support and take care of. It was so difficult because I just wasn't there physically, emotionally. And I finally had a friend who convinced me to, to go to AA. And I called and I had two women come. They came to my house. They picked me up. They brought me to my first meeting. I began attending meetings. And that was my way back to God because I did have God as a child. I accepted Jesus as my savior at a very small Baptist church when I was 11 years old. My parents stopped us from going to church and God got left behind, you know, shortly after that. But I refound my faith in AA. And I can't say enough about that program because it definitely saves lives, just in the fact that it has a a spiritual foundation. And once I got sober, I stopped drinking. I stopped hiding. I stopped pushing down those feelings. These things started beginning to rise in me. After a few years of sobriety, recognized things like coincidences weren't coincidences. Prayer was important. And I just noticed little by little, my life was getting better, but I still danced. 
I wasn't ready to get out. I didn't want to get out because I didn't know how, first of all. I didn't know what I would do for another job. I tried multiple jobs. I studied acting. I I did television commercials. I thought maybe I could go do something like that. It would still give me the admiration that I somewhat received on the stage, but that didn't fill me. I went to work for the cruise lines. I worked with many celebrities on board Norwegian Caribbean Cruise Lines, and that didn't fill me. The only thing that really filled me was when I started surrendering my life to God and letting him take the wheel and begin controlling, looking to him to control my situations, depending on not making choices so much myself, but asking for his guidance. When I started doing that, that's when the change really started. Now, I met my husband in the club when I was in my 30s, late 20s, 30s. Once we got married and I started having children, I thought I would never go back to dancing. But it's interesting because the clubs recruit you back. I used to have a funny phrase. I would say they recycle their dancers because when you can't dance anymore, they brought you in as a waitress. So the customers still knew you, even though you didn't want to dance. So they still had you there. And it's interesting because I talk about how that's kind of Satan's way of getting you to you through the back door. It's like, okay, well, I'm not dancing anymore, but I can teach dance. They brought me in as a teacher. They brought me in as a waitress. They just kept recycling me. And that's how I ended up staying in that business for so long. Then after I had my second child, I think, is when I finally quit. I was close to 40 years old and my husband wanted me to stay in it. And I didn't want to. I had had at one point experience while I was on stage It was a very traumatic experience. And I I believe that God allowed me to see the darkness in the hearts of the men that went into those clubs. I was on stage and all of a sudden I felt a cold wind like sweep past me, like almost sweep through me as I was dancing, as I was moving towards the edge of the stage to begin to pick up tips. And it frightened me because I noticed that as I looked at the faces of the men sitting around the stage, they look like they were dead. And I can't, it's hard for me to help someone else to understand this, except their faces were pasty white. Their eyes were lifeless. There was no emotion in them at all. I was so terrified that I literally left the stage and went to the dressing room, something I'd never done. As a professional, you never leave a stage empty. But I was so terrified by what I saw. God had allowed me in that moment, to see the hearts of these evil men. And later in life, after I'd stopped dancing and gotten out of that business and God had begun to show me a lot of other things in my life, I came to think about things that I'd never thought of before. And one of them is, where do these men go when they leave this club? Where do they go? Are these the men that are stealing kids? Are these the men who are going home and raping their daughters because there's a lust that's driven into them while they're sitting at a stage? Was I responsible for things like that? The thought of that shook me so badly that when the movie The Sound of Freedom came out, I really resonated with a scene where there was the woman in the limousine with all of the girls, and she was promising them money and all of the different things that they were going to get. And I thought to myself, that's Linda Lucerne. And all the things that I've been through in my life 
have happened because it began there. It began in in a situation similar to that limousine scene in The Sound of Freedom. And, and the children, are these the men who are willing to pay for these children? Are they the men who sat in the seats in the strip club where I was on stage? The thoughts of those things just crushed me. And that's kind of when I began to start looking at my own life. It was at a writer's conference that I had someone point out to me that I had actually been trafficked. I mean, those are thoughts that I had prior to learning that. But once I did learn it, those thoughts really, really grew. And I thought about it more. But I was at a writer's conference and I had someone ask me, so how did you get into dancing anyway? And when I told her my story, that's when she said, you were groomed. You were trafficked. Oh, no, 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 I wasn't. I made up my own mind to do this, I said. She said, no, honey. Would you have ever gone into a place like that on your own? And I said, no, I'd never been into a place like that. I didn't even know they existed. And she said, that's what I mean. She said, there was someone who did. And that person preyed on you to bring you into a business where she was going to make money off of what you were doing. Yes, you were going to make money too, but it was presented to you in such a subtle way. It wasn't really about you. It was about her. As I processed that thought, I was horrified. I was horrified that this woman took my life and pointed it in a direction that totally changed anything that could have been good for me. And that's something that is so important for everybody that's listening to understand. These people are very good at what they do. Yes. They know how to draw people in. They know how to disguise their true intentions. Oh, yes. And so that's why it's so important that we talk about this. I, I know it's a difficult topic and a lot of people just want to cover their ears and say, I don't need to know about that. But if any of us can intervene in any way in a girl's life or even a young boy's life before they get to where they were your age, just realizing what was going on, what kind of things can we look for? What can we do to help? You know, I've asked myself that question. If I could go back what could someone have said to me that might have helped me to realize that when this woman approached me with this whole idea, what could someone have said to me that would have made me think, yeah, you're right. This is bad. This is not something I should do. What I think is that I wish that there was more education in the schools. I wish that the churches would become more involved in educating their Christian teachers, their Christian community, yes. women's groups. As parents, I think we need to pay attention to the signs if our daughters are coming home or met or boys, if they're coming home with expensive jewelry, new pocketbooks, things that they don't normally do. All of a sudden, keep in different hours. Kids always keep their phones with them, but we need to pay attention to who they're talking to. Is there somebody new in their life? Have they distanced themselves in any way from their friends for new friends that have come into their life? A lot of things like this are the subtle ways that as parents and group leaders, we can recognize these things. And a lot of times, another thing that we're battling these days are porn sites. We have young girls that are getting paid and they feel that it's harmless because somebody told them that if they got online, that they could make money just in their bedroom and it's completely innocent. You don't have to have anyone touch you. That's a very tempting idea for some yeah. young people. And if you're a minor, you need to know there's potential that you could actually be prosecuted 
even though it's pictures of yourself, you are creating child sex abuse materials. Yeah. Depending on where you are, Uh you could get in a whole lot of trouble for that. Yes. And that's, that's a big thing with young girls. I'm going to tell you, I was on my way to do a, a movie and I had two young girls in the back of my car extras that I was bringing on set with me. They wanted to be extras. And I was talking with them as we were driving to the shoot scene. And I asked them, I said, so what do you guys want to do when you grow up? And one of the girls blew my mind. She came out with, I want to be a stripper. I was like, what? A stripper? Yeah. Do you know how much money they make? Well, by the time we got to where we were shooting the film, neither one of them ever wanted to be a stripper. I was just mortified that here are 14-year-old girls saying that they want to be a stripper. They know so little about the background of that business. I think it's important for everybody to know, like you said earlier, we have in our minds that traffickers have the windowless vans and they're running around kidnapping everybody. Yeah. Obviously, that wasn't the case for you. I read a statistic not too long ago that one of the fastest growing ways that young people are trafficked is by other young people. Yes. So be very careful of the company your kids are keeping, even when they're people their own age. And church, I'm going to have to tell you, they're going to come for the kids in our youth groups because those kids are the least likely to see it coming to know what it is and to be able to protect themselves because we don't talk about it. Exactly. And that's an atrocity because if there's anywhere that we should be talking about it, it's in church. This is from a spiritual point of view. This is a demon possessed art of grooming and trafficking these kids. This is a way that Satan from a spiritual perspective is attacking our youth. If as Christians, we can't talk about this, How are we fighting the enemy? How are we fighting the enemy in a legitimate way? We need to stop shoveling things under the carpet, pretending they're not happening, and don't use the words grooming or sex or porn in church. Because if we don't use those words, we can't educate on those subjects. And you're doing a great job educating people. I know you've been on other podcasts. You've got a website. We're going to have in the show notes a link to that so everybody can see what you're doing. You've done films. You've done writing. So tell me about your latest projects and how people can best get in contact with you to learn more. I have a website and it's inspiringsouls.com. Very easy to get to. I've had it for over 20 years. As soon as I stopped dancing, I started this website. I knew I wanted to write a book. And at the time, I just didn't know how. Life kept happening. One thing led to another. And I need to update that site and talk more about my story and what I've been through. But I have done several anthologies. Most recently, I have done a book called Chosen to Live. It's by Mark Craigle, Donna Skell, and Frank Bell. And it's an anthology of healing stories. My testimony is in that book. And I talk about a lot of the things that I went through. Also, I do a lot of Christian films. I work behind the scenes, script supervising as a makeup artist, as well as acting. I have a movie right now. It's playing on Prime and 2B. It's called All In. I also worked on The Casting Stones. I have another movie that's done by Dominic Gianetti that should be coming out early 2024. It's called God Will Listen. 
So I'm involved in a lot of things. And I'm also, most recently, I'm beginning to volunteer with one of the groups, an anti-trafficking group. And I'm hoping that through my volunteering in this group in Palm Beach, that I can help find more ways that I can bring awareness to the grooming topic of, of trafficking, because I feel like it's not talked about enough. The book by uh, Mark Craigle and Donna Skell and Frank Bell. I just got back from Dallas last month. We did a book signing for this and it can be purchased on Amazon, but it can also be purchased on my website. If you would like a signed copy, there's a $20 donation and that donation goes to keeping my website online, continuing to be able to author these stories. I do not get paid personally for the books. I, I don't get paid for putting my story in them. Most everything I do is done on a volunteer basis to try to contribute to helping in the efforts to create awareness for trafficking. That is so phenomenal. And I appreciate so much you sharing your story and what you've learned from it and tips for us. Because you're right, we don't talk about this enough in or out of church. Mm -hmm. So thank you again for sharing and for giving us the knowledge that there's always hope. Oh, there's always hope. If anyone wants to reach out to me, I have on my website an email, and I'd be more than happy to talk to someone privately if they felt that they needed some advice. Wow, that's wonderful. Thank you again, Jean. Best, best wishes to you. Thank you, Lori. We're going to read a short passage from Psalm 82 today in the New International Version, verses 2 through 4. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. How I love the fact that God never fails in his compassion for his children, especially those in need. In this psalm, he is calling out people who are abusing the official power that they had. But all of us have an unofficial power if you think about power as the ability to influence someone. I think that same principle then applies to any of us. Who do we know that needs to hear that they are seen, that what they're going through isn't right, and that they deserve better? And if the person that needs to hear all that is you, then let me speak over you that if you are being taken advantage of, God loves you and he has so much more for you. I hope that you'll seek out a loving church family that can help you. And if you don't even know how to find one, send me an email and I will do what I can to help connect you to one. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Send me an email at lori at theunlovelytruth.com or message me on social media. I love it so much when people are willing to have those hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.